My name's Pat, and I'm an alcoholic. What I'd like to do is introduce Kane and start the retreat. Kane Crawford, I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to God and Alcoholics Anonymous for my sobriety for my life. Like to once again start the morning with a moment of silent meditation, and then we'll invite God into this meeting. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Um, we're going to start our steps today. I'm really looking forward to every bit of it. Um, really going to be fun. I, I, I want to do one thing really quickly. Uh, somebody came up to me last night after we were done, and he reminded me, not that I needed to be reminded, but I, I mentioned Eric Williams last night. Eric was my sponsor for over 21 years, and every time Eric shared, he started his share with what I'm about to read. And since we're talking about miraculous demonstrations, I think that this is especially appropriate. And please forgive me if I tear up a little bit. Um, he said, hello, everybody. My name is Eric Williams, and I'm an alcoholic. It is only through the grace of God in this program that I am sober today. I consider that a miracle in my life. If you are an alcoholic like me and sober today, you are a miracle too, whether you believe it or not. If you don't believe that, believe that I believe it. I say that every single time I share, because you don't get from where I came from to where I am today without some kind of divine intervention in your life. I'm convinced that is what happened in, your, in, in my case, and I know that it is what happened in yours if you're sitting here sober today. Miraculous demonstrations. And, and as you will hear, I'm sure, as these men come up and share with you their experience with the steps, uh, they have all experienced miraculous demonstrations as well. Um, so excited to, to hear everybody. Um, we're going to start. Um, we're gonna, I, I, think it's, I think it's really appropriate that we do the steps in order. Um, I, I, th I think that's great. <laughs> I was told when I got here that that's why they're numbered, is for dummies like me. You know, you don't get to jump around. They're numbered for a reason for people like me. And uh, Gordon is going to tell us uh, about his experience with steps one, two, and three. And he's likely also going to tell us some really bad jokes. But, but, but we all look forward to that as well. Gordon, come on up, my friend. My name is Groden, and I'm an alcoholic. My friends call me Gordon. And uh, start the timer so that I don't go over. I uh, want to thank everybody uh, for being here today, and I want to thank Pat for asking me to uh, come and share my experience, strength, and hope with you guys on steps one, two, and three. 
I want to welcome the guys who uh, want to be here, the guys who don't want to be here, the guys who are forced to be here, and the guys who don't even know where the hell they are. <laughs> You're all welcome. Um, you know, uh, this is my first time up at this retreat, Valley Mountain, and uh, what an experience. What an experience. And, um, you know, what are there, four or five other retreats going on at the same time? I saw, what, two churches uh, having their retreat, two colleges having their retreat, and then there's a retreat for women with no legs. That place is crawling with pussy. And, uh, you know, uh, go long or go home, right? And, uh, you know, <clears throat> first, uh, first experience being here. And um, last night uh, I had a little difficulty sleeping. And uh, I'm not sure if any of you guys did as well. Uh, I got zero hours of sleep and still feel pretty good after it. Um, the experience in my cabin uh, wasn't that people were staying up late. Uh, we had five snorers. And... Um, <clears throat> One of them was right beside me and was uh, basically 10 out of 10 on the Richter scale and sometimes an 11. And uh, it made me flash back to that scene in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when Chief grabbed the pillow. And I, I, I don't want to, you know, don't want to say who it was, but if I would have killed him, you guys would have said, oh, my God, you killed Kenny. Steps one, two, and three are um, extremely vital, just as uh, are the rest of these steps. And like Cain said, we have to take them in order. I thought that uh, I'd put a little work into this instead of just completely wing it. And so um, what I looked at was uh, several different ways to, to help the new sick alcoholic understand what steps one, two, and three are about. Uh, cliches helped me dramatically in the beginning because you guys would speak in paragraphs and I could only understand two or three words at a time. And um, one of them was, I can't, he can, so let him. Uh, the other was, you can't, we can, so let us. Came, came to, came to believe. Honesty, hope, and faith. Spiritual those are the spiritual principles behind the first three steps. The how part of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. The who is uh, willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness. And we'll get to the who and the how later. Acceptance, belief, trust. Surrender, hope, change. The ABCs, of course. A, that we were, we were alcoholic, could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could relieve our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. Each one of these are concepts and philosophies to strive for or live by if you have a problem with alcohol. And uh, the life that I had before uh, pushed me to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. The big book gives us a definition of the alcoholic. It says, if, you want, if, you want, if when you honestly want to, you find that you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. 
And uh, I would imagine that most of you guys qualify if you're sitting in these seats today. It comes down to the fact that I had lost power of choice and I had lost the power to control my drink. I just didn't know that's what it was. When I tried to control it, I didn't enjoy it. When I tried to enjoy it, I couldn't control it. The doctor's opinion, that chapter in this book, is of extreme importance. It discusses alcoholism as an illness. If you're not sure if you're an alcoholic, I recommend reading those pages. They're the one with all the X's, the I's, and the V's. We do not pronounce anyone alcoholic, and it says you can quickly diagnose yourself. And once again, I figure if you guys paid 170 bucks a ticket to come up here, you probably think you're alcoholic. Obsession of the mind compelled with that, uh, coupled with that allergy of the body. Add in a, a huge pinch of spiritual malady, and you got yourself one sick alcoholic human being. The phenomenon of craving, they say, is limited to our class and our class only. It doesn't happen in the temperate drinker. Uh, I'd seen times, uh, I remember this one particular time in Carlsbad with my wife, and uh, there's a group of five people, three guys, two girls. It was at a pizza brewery place, really good pizza. It's on Carlsbad Village Drive, by the way, if you're out there. And um, these guys ordered two pitchers for the five of them and a pizza. And when they left about 45 minutes later, there was one pitcher full left and a quarter of the other one left. And I was only about two or three years sober at the time. I could not understand that concept. And my wife, you know, we were on just a vacation for that uh, weekend. And I turned turn around to her and I said, look, I was watching those guys constantly. <laughs> and uh, they didn't even touch it out of the picture. If you want, I'll go get you a glass. You can have a couple of beers. There's no big deal. You're not an alcoholic. You're fine. And then she said the weirdest thing ever. She says, nah, didn't want it. Couldn't believe it. And so I ate my pizza, and I watched beer get warm. <laughs> the mind can't stop thinking about it if you're an alcoholic. That's the obsession. When we take a drink, we have to have more. That's the allergy. And the spiritual malady affects you and everyone else around you, which allows that vicious cycle to continue endlessly. We drink because we like the effect produced by alcohol. And when we do, we can't tell the difference between true and false. Think of your daily routine when you were drinking. Who gets up and makes sure that they have a half pint of alcohol so they can get their day started? Who ends their day passing out from the amount of alcohol that you drank on that given day? Who wakes up the very next day and does the same thing? And that was normal. I never had the thought in my mind that I was hiding, deceiving the public or anything about it. It's just what I did. Got up, and I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like you guys do, and then I go to the liquor store. <clears throat> We're irritable, restless, and discontent. Unless at once we get that ease and comfort that comes from taking a few drinks. Drinks we see other guys taking without impunity. No punishment. They can have a couple of few drinks. They can get drunk. They show up to work the next day. They don't think about drinking. I constantly thought about drinking and never knew that I was constantly thinking about my drinking. It's just the way I was made when I was in the cups of my illness. 
Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. My wife begged me to get sober. Please, please, you need help. Glass in hand with warped mind, I held that door open for her and told her, there's the door. If you don't like it, leave. Who does that to a woman who's devoted her entire life to you, who worshiped the ground you walked on? We treat the ones who love us the worst. And it uh, took a long time for me to let that set in. Most of the stuff that I'm talking about right now, I discovered after I got sober. I had no idea I was doing it while I was drinking. Uh, there is a, a cool thing about this disease is um, there is a solution. It's just an entire psyche change is required. <laughs> Otherwise, there's very little hope for recovery. Those are powerful words. What's your choice going to be? The 12 steps can bring on that necessary spiritual awakening needed to obtain and maintain your sobriety. It's not about just getting sober. It's about staying sober. If you think it's easy, try it for a few years. In my case, when I got here, try it for three days. It doesn't have to be a burning bush experience. Um, I used to think that a burning bush experience was something you got from an STD. (laughs) My spiritual awakening was more of an educational variety, like it says at the back of the book. Uh, There are a thousand paths to faith. There's not just one. I hope you find the one that makes you the most comfortable. Contempt prior to investigation kept me in everlasting ignorance for so long. The fear that uh, went through every single you know, fabric of my being. Uh, many suggestions where you need to get help. They even told me where to go, but I'm not going. No way. I don't want to uh, get help from anybody. I don't need your help. It wasn't even a matter of saying, I know I need help, but I'm not going. I didn't think I needed help. You need help. It's funny when I look back at it. The last thing that I tried was the first thing that worked. I had to try a thousand things first until I made it up those stairs. Step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives were unmanageable. I drank too much, too often, and too long. I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, but I can tell you the first time alcohol touched my lips, an alcoholic was born. I don't need to try to figure out why. I just need to know that I am one. And that, uh, that takes care of half of the battle right there. Um, when I first started drinking, it was about 15. And uh, by the uh, middle of my 15th year, I was taking flasks of alcohol to high school every day. And um, I used to think everybody did it because I hung out with three or four other people who did it. Uh, apparently, the 2,900 and 996 other people in the school didn't do that, and I didn't know. Uh, when you hang out with lower companions, you become a lower companion. Didn't know that as well. Everybody else were just squares. <clears throat> Alcoholism, the disease that tells you that you haven't got one. It'll even tell it to you in your own voice, whispering. When I started drinking, um, it was only to get drunk, 
never to socially drink. Uh, cases of beer all the time. Um, the only reason why I drank $10 worth of beer on that given day is because my allowance as a kid was only $10. And so I did a lot of, uh, hey, man, can I have a beer? And mooching off a lot of people. And then my allowance went up to 20 drinking double. And then the miracle happened. I got a job. And I can drink as much as I want now. Uh, I worked at a grocery store for a little bit. And I don't know about you. I know somebody here who works at a grocery store has for a while. And um, I didn't know that you're not supposed to take a 24-pack of beer and put it in an empty box and take it to the trash can outside, put it in it, and then come back at 9 o'clock at night and pick it up out of the trash. I just thought that's what you do. And uh, they slowly figured it out and then set me up by having me drink a chocolate milk that I didn't pay for, and then I got ratted out on that, and they fired me. They had to find an excuse, and they did. Alcoholics find excuses all the time, and then sometimes we die because of that. Um, That was one of the indicators that there may be a problem. However, there was no acknowledgement of it at the time. At a young age, I had become a terrible alcoholic, or a good one, depending on your perspective. When I got to AA, like I said, fear engulfed me. Uh, I was drinking so much that a normal drinker would have died based on the amount and quantity of alcohol I drank on a daily basis. My pilot light was almost out when I got here. It was basically like it was flickering in the wind, and the uh, it was like burning a candle at both ends, like they say. Eventually, that wax has to run out, and my life was coming to an end. Uh, I remember going to the doctors, and um, I was worried that I was going to have problems with my liver and my kidneys. When you're drinking almost uh, a handle a day of vodka, slight chance you might have some uh, organ failure. And so I went to the doctor, and the doctor took uh, the blood test, and then he told me, uh, do you drink? Your liver enzymes are off the charts. And I looked at him, told him the truth to the best of my ability, and I say, I have a couple of beers here and there. And that was all I was gonna, that, that could come out of my mouth, literally. That was the best I can do. And then he just looked at me and says, okay, well, we'll take a test on this here again in a couple of months, come back. And so I went back, and the numbers were worse. And so he says, do you drink? And I said, okay, Doc, I'm going to level with you. I drink about a half pint of vodka a day. And he looked at me and said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. That's no good for you. You need to spread it out over the day. You need to eat three, four good meals a day, make sure you've got something to absorb it. Poor guy was trying to do his job. And like the line in the book says, you know, we don't give doctors a fair chance. Step one is about honesty. Not only, firstly, to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic, but to those who are trying to help me. That was my cry for help, a lie. That was the best I could come up with at the time. And uh, quick forward jump, I went to that doctor again two years after I got sober, panicking, still in fear that the damage I had done, even though I was sober, 
was going to be uh, devastating news. And the doctor came up to me and he said, uh, I got your numbers right here. I got some good news for you and some bad news. And the good news was I don't have kidney or liver damage. But you have diabetes. And I went, yes! <laughs> and then I learned about diabetes. And uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you because that's not good for diabetics. I threw that one over at you, Frank. <clears throat> By this time when I did get sober, I was drinking three 32-ounce bottles of Gatorade a day. Uh, they were uh, fortified with B vitamins, so I know it was good for you. They had a lot of electrolytes in it and 20 ounces of vodka. Three of those a day is basically 60 ounces of vodka a day, plus a six-pack of beer so that my wife couldn't smell it. And uh, I still had a job, still had the wife, still had the kids, still had the two cars in the driveway. And so what's the problem? I didn't know that I could not not drink. I didn't know... I didn't. I was so far into my disease, there was no concept. If you got a problem, you got a problem. I'm just in it. And uh, what a sad, sorry case to have to have a woman live with. <clears throat> Basically, having one drink for me is like having one Cheerio for breakfast, and that's a concept uh, because I never ever said that's enough. Thank you. Hiding my bottle all the time. Another habit that uh, an alcoholic who has a wife who doesn't like your drinking will do. And I hid my bottles constantly and thought that I got away with it. Uh, my wife uh, actually knew every single spot I had. And every once in a while, I'd wake up in the morning and the bottle sitting right there on the counter. And that was her way of saying something to me without saying something to me because she did not dare say something to me. We, that was a subject we couldn't talk about. And uh, so I started to hide bottles in different places. And then I'd wake up the next morning because it wasn't in my usual place. I couldn't find the bottle. And that's a scary feeling. Um, powerless over alcohol. It makes you do things that you didn't want to do, that you look back at today and, and realize you would never do. But when you've got a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home, and you ran out of alcohol, and you tell the kids, you guys just sit right there, I'll be right back. And then you take off down the street to the liquor store to go get your booze and come back. And then you look, and they're in the same place that you left them, thank God. But it uh, could have been a different story. And I did not measure the danger of neglecting my children over the power that drew me to go get my drink because I had to have a drink. And that's how far out there I was as to understanding uh, the truth uh, and the difference between the false. <clears throat> then came that day when I drank a whole bottle of vodka. And I remember drinking that bottle halfway down to the label on the first chug. And shortly thereafter, finishing that bottle, polishing it off. And I remember looking at that bottle and saying to myself, damn it. Nothing. It's not there. That was one of the scariest moments as a drinker for me. That horrible thought when they say, if you don't get a drink real soon, you feel like you're going to die, and if you 
I competed with the, if I continue to drink like this, I'm going to die anyways. And that, uh, that's a horrible spot to be in. Pain and being beaten into a state of reasonableness had to come before that moment of clarity. These moments of clarity don't come often in my experience. Mine only came once. <clears throat> I tried all of the imaginable remedies. Uh, people without a drinking problem don't try to remedy what they don't have a problem with. And um, I remember my dad had a, his beer of choice or drink of choice was a Lowenbrow, and he would buy a six-pack of Lowenbrow, and that six-pack would stay in the fridge for three months. And so I know he didn't have a problem with it. Uh, I myself had a problem with it. So I remember one year, uh, I think it was in, I got sober in 2004, must have been 2003, somewhere around um, uh, New Year's resolution, I said that I'm going to switch from hard stuff to beer only. And I meant it. That was my first acknowledgement that there may be a problem. I didn't say it to my wife, I just did it. Um, So uh, I went from drinking close to a handle of vodka a day to drinking, you know, 12 pack or so of Heineken's. And then I said, well, let me lighten that up a little bit because, you know, I really have a goal of, of lightening up on my drinking. So I changed that to light beer. And then I changed that from light beer to ultra-light beer, and I'm drinking about 16 or 17 of those. Still thinking I'm doing good. And then I switched to near beer, and I was drinking close to 30 of those a day. And this mind, the alcoholic mind, was telling me that I was doing good. I was getting fat and bloated, and I always had a can of beer in my hand, And once one crumbled, the other one opened. And when you take the math and do about 30 near beers, it's like drinking three or four beers a day. And I didn't know the reason why I was drinking that much was to avoid going through seizures and through the withdrawal symptoms. So it was just enough not to get me high, but just enough that I wouldn't die. And uh, two things to learn from that experience. One, drinking ultralight beers like making love in a rowboat, they're both fu- uh, fucking close to water. <laughs> and drinking near beer is like going down on your cousin. It kind of tastes the same, but you know something's not right. <laughs> when I was 30 years old, I was playing in bands at the time, and... Uh, it's not exactly a great atmosphere to be in, uh, but it was fun. And I did all, a lot of my drinking there and, and a lot of my other stuff there. And I remember saying once at an after party, looking around like a bunch of people partying and having fun, getting crazy, all the insanity. And I said, this is pretty fun, but, you know, I think I'll quit when I'm 40. And I said that to myself. And I meant it at the time. To the best of my ability, here's what a guy who has a drinking problem says. In 10 years from now, I'll think about it. And uh, I turned 40. And I was in the worst part of my drinking disease. And on my birthday, out of the blue, that thought came back. You promised that you would quit when you were 40. And I was in no position to quit at that time. But then the thought was then readily supplanted 
with the uh, threadbare idea that I'm going to be 40 for a whole year. <laughs> and so that didn't need to be addressed at that time. I don't know if any of you guys can relate with that kind of logic and reasoning. The frothy emotional appeal thing seldom suffices. I remember my wife on her hands and knees crying hysterically going through a breakdown while I was passed out on the couch in front of her. And she wasn't screaming at me. She was screaming to a God of her understanding. And I opened up one eye and I heard her scream, God, please help him. God, please help him. And my eye closed, and that's all I remember of that moment. There was no discussion about it the next morning. I uh, didn't have any intentions of uh, getting sober that next day, nor the week after. And things continued. But I don't know what happened. Three weeks later, I think God said, you know what? Remember that promise? I think it's time to cash that one in. And so through his magic, mysterious ways and works, he, the voice through, of God came through my wife's uh, mouth that said, I'm leaving you, and I mean it, and for good. And at that moment, that moment of clarity clicked. I recognized that of all the times I've held the door open, this was the one where the door was going to be slammed behind her, not in front of her. And so uh, I said, please, don't, don't leave. I'll do this A&A thing, and I'll give it a shot. And uh, that was scary. I decided I was going to go in and just sneak in and check it out. And so I went to uh, Rafters on August 3rd, which is the weekend of their Alcathon. And my intention was to sneak in, but there was 150 people standing there. And when you walked inside, there was another 100 more. And I, they were smoking back then. And I walked in, and I didn't last 10 minutes. I went to the window to try to breathe, but opened it, and all the smoke comes to you because that's where the window is. And uh, I walked out. And uh, this one guy handed me his card, and the only words I heard as I was running down the stairs was, keep coming back. And that's all I heard. And so I walked across the street to Market Liquor, I believe is what it's called, picked up a half pint of vodka and a Gatorade bottle, and put my Gatorade mixed with fortified vitamin B12 and electrolytes and mixed it with the appropriate amount of vodka and drove home and told my wife it didn't work. And so uh, my uh, wife, the Al-Anon in training at the time, uh, went out in search of another place where I can go. And uh, she found a non-smoking establishment called Stepping Stones. She apparently walked in, talked with this man, and um, got a lot of information on it, came home, told me where it was. Now, this is a woman who had nothing left for me in her heart, but still, that one iota of hope left that maybe I can get sober. If anything, if she leaves me and I get sober, that's still a win-win. And um, she told me to go, and I went. And I walked in at uh, August 4th, 2004. I tried to keep a low profile, and I hope no one noticed again. And I walked into a room with about 32 people, and it was a small room at the time. 
And uh, I did my, uh, I was at my utmost worst when you guys were at your utmost best, is all I can tell you. And uh, I didn't fool one person in that whole room. Uh, but when I did get there, uh, Tommy D was there. He was on his second day. Shout out to Tommy. And he made me feel better because he was a wreck. <laughs> and if he can look like he's having that kind of a time in AA, and then I know I'm in the right place. And even, Tommy, you being at your worst on that day gave me hope that I'm in the right place. And you didn't need to say a word to me. <clears throat> I heard the message loud and clear. I heard the music of AA. Spencer Schramm recognized that there were a couple of newcomers in the room at the time and gave us the definition of alcoholism, that loss of power and control. Long ago, I had lost the power of choice in drink and the power to control my drinking after I started drinking. I, it was finally explained to me in words that I could understand. I had a disease. I wasn't bad. Everything I did to people was bad, but I had a disease, and that's not an excuse. Something could be actually done about it. There again. It was on that day, August 4, 2004, that I struck and found something better than gold. I found hope. To a guy who could not put down the drink, I found hope. Kahuya Lou, Tom Moore, Spence Schramm, took me under their wings and carried the message to me. They showed me that there was a solution, and the worst in me brought out, like I said, the best in them. Spence explained the problem to me. Tom brought a smile to my face, and Louie gave me my first really big hug. These are powerful moments, and they are a culmination. The spiritual awakening is a culmination, I believe, of a bunch of spiritual experiences along the way, and I just described a few of them. I can't tell you what it's like to have... A, like Cain did for me here, hug me at the, at, at the podium. I can accept a hug like that today, but when Louie gave it to me, I was unhuggable, unlovable, sick, and he held on to me for about a minute, and I just cried. Finally, I'm home. <clears throat> when, the teacher, when the student is ready, the teachers will appear, they say. The first roadblock is that we have to admit complete defeat powerlessness before a beginning can even take place and take a stronghold. How do you convince an alcoholic to give up, to surrender? We think we can do everything on our own. Asking for help? You've got to be kidding. I mean, I was doing so well. The near immediate future for me at the time was the wife and I were about to have a long-distance relationship. A restraining order will do that for you. <laughs> there would be no visitation rights for me and my children. Because when you drink as much as me, they won't allow you near the children. And I couldn't stop. DUI was going to be in inevitable, and so was death. It was just a matter of which one's going to be first. I have awoken uh, at the wheel, and um, it was moving. And I'm still here to talk about it. I don't know, somebody mentioned before, how many near-death experiences we have to go until we finally get the message. I have many. Some of them I even remember. Remember that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful? The most important word is that sentence is remember. A lot of us forget that. We have easy forgetters. The baffling part of alcoholism is the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter the necessity or the wish. 
And when you got a wife begging you, I love you, you need help, please let me help you, let me get you help, and you can't, you don't want it, even though you know you need it. Alcoholism is very powerful. So I ended up in AA. I had to either be thoroughly convinced to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic or die by the wayside. That part was easy for me. I had nowhere else to go but up. Don't drink no matter what. Put the plug in the jug. It's either first things first or thirst things first. On my third day, I saw Tom Moore take a cake for 19 years. And I was as skeptic as any could be. And I watched that process from the moment they sang to him and the moment they hugged him and the laughter and the music of the song in AA. And that's when, like the poker guys last night, I put all my chips in. I didn't hold one chip back. I was told him that I needed a sponsor and that getting sober was going to be one of the most, if not the most difficult thing I'm ever going to do in my entire life. So I got a sponsor within my first week. Uh, my prerequisites for my sponsor was that he looked like Curly from the Three Stooges and had a great sense of humor. And thank God he also had good program at the time. That man helped save my life along with those other guys. <clears throat> my uh, sponsor told me to pray to God to have the obsession removed. If you're new, that obsession is a mother effort. And it haunted me, every part of my being. And I remember in the first 30 days, first five days, first 10 days, saying, God, please take that obsession away. Please take it away. I can't take it anymore. I give it to you. Please, God, take it. And I would say that prayer 100 times a day in the beginning. I went out at 1 o'clock in the morning once to this elementary school a couple of blocks from my house and screamed that out loud. That's how much I didn't want to drink. I called my sponsor at 1 in the morning. He picked up the phone, and he told me he was proud of me. In my most insane moment, I get a man telling me he was proud of me, and I didn't drink that day. And then it slowly went from 100 times a day to 20 to 10 to 5 to 2, and then a couple of few days go by, and I notice I hadn't said that prayer. So I called my sponsor. I go, you know, I haven't said that obsession prayer. I I don't remember the last time. He goes, great. Now, from every, every day, you say, thank you, God, for removing the obsession. And I've been doing that for over 15 years. How was I to know that uh, spiritual principles would help solve all my problems? You guys told me. Spiritual uh, principles are honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, brotherly love, justice, perseverance, spirituality, and service. What are those? None of that was what what made my, my personality at that time. All I had to do was be willing to go to any length. That's it. Just go to any length. Be willing to do so. When I, go to Alcoholics Anonymous, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was done. There was no more left in me. Anything would be better than the way that I used to live. When you ask a newcomer those same questions, are you willing to go to any length? Are you done? And if they go, they're not ready. And all we can do at that point is plant the seed and hope it takes hold later if they're lucky to make it back if they decide to go out. It still amazes me to see how far down the scale some of us, including myself, had to go until we surrendered completely. Sadly, few people sincerely sincerely practice this AA program unless they've hit rock bottom themselves. Some pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. The uh, taking on the disease of alcoholism on your own is like fighting Mike Tyson in an eight-by-eight-foot cage with both of your hands tied behind your back tied and strapped to a chair in the middle of the ring with no referee 
and no timer. If you can picture that in your head, you might understand half of how powerful the disease of alcoholism really is. The insanity is that you still thought that you can take them. Thought that maybe if you moved a little from side to side, did a little shuck and jive, maybe he'd tire himself out. And after weeks spent in a hospital or a rehab trying to uh, recover from your injuries, you come out with a new fight plan. It's crazy, isn't it? Not to some of us prize fighters with those perfect records, 0-135. The disease of uh, alcoholism never gets tired. It doesn't. We need to be vigilant. It wants to kill you. In this case, it wants to bite your ear off, too. If MMA is more of your your thing, imagine, if you will, that the fighter has you on the ground in a rear-naked, firm rear-naked choke hold. The grip on you is way too tight. And you've only got a few quick decisions to make really fast. One, tap out. Two, go to sleep. Or for us, three, to die. And if you're sitting there going, I wish you luck. I've got two magnets here. And the power of the strength of alcoholism and its disease aren't just that they're stuck together. When an alcoholic takes the drink, the drink takes the alcoholic. And it's not that easy to just pull back away from it. And when you pull away from it, that little part that I'm fighting right now is the disease telling you you need a drink. And so what if you pull away this bar? I'm going to still go to bars and hang out. I'm going to still go to this. I'm going to still hang out with my old friends. You're right back on. Pulling off is not easy. And they teach us that if we stay away from drink, the pull isn't there. If you get to be lucky, you don't have to have them in there at all. I don't know what concept works for you guys. I had to use the simple ones that worked for me because I can understand that stuff. When you try to tell me the power of alcoholism, I don't know. I always thought I could take it. When I'm actively in my disease, I'm powerless over taking my first drink. I'm powerless over how much I drink. I'm powerless over my behavior when I drink. Powerless over the consequences for my behaviors. I'm extremely spiritually sick and in extreme fear all the time due to my alcoholic insanity. I'm in complete denial of my entire situation. And the end result will either be jails, institutions, or death. Right now we're talking about physical sobriety. Keeping the drink away from the drunk It's the number one priority at first. That's the first thing's first concept. Acceptance, love, and tolerance can help in all forms of powerlessness as well, including people, places, and things when dealing with our emotional sobriety, but that can be addressed at a later time. Just remember that you're not completely powerless. One of your pubic hairs can shut down a fancy restaurant for a whole day. One of your turds can shut down an entire water pot for a week. Step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The uh, cornerstone step. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual uh, basis are not easy alternatives to face. Can you believe it? 
That's the simplest choice to make, and we always still have difficulty making it. Alcoholic insanity can block you from making the choice that can help you save your life. Oblivion sounds better than peace and serenity when you're completely out of your mind. Personally, I don't like to be called insane. I prefer the term mentally hilarious. But uh, <clears throat> they say that there's a highway to hell and only a stairway to heaven. It says something about the traffic pattern that they expect. And I'll take the steps, thank you. The book in the program tells us that the lack of power was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. If there was any way for the alcoholic to get and stay sober, the book would have mentioned it. Rehabs and detox centers are short hospitalization stays, and they're great for starting points. But that's all they are, a starting point. Its goal is to dry you out and give you a brief opportunity to find your moment of clarity. Sadly, to most of those people, the moment is fleeting and soon gone. Some die, and some are lucky enough to make it back there. It's like the half-life theory. You go out, you come back in six months, you go out again, you barely make it back in three months, sicker than you were before. You go out again, you come back in a month and a half, if you're lucky, and you're twice as sick as you were last time, and it just goes on and on and on, and I don't make up those numbers. I have a friend who has that personal story, and that same guy is sober almost two years now. It can be done. Many of those places have heard God's name cried out in its halls. God answers those cries by having one of their representatives pass on the message to you that you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Many of us forget the message by the time we reach the exit door. The most fortunate, and they are few in number, make it to Alcoholics Anonymous and realize that this is not a game. This is a matter of life and death. I hear that Starbucks has a pretty good outpatient program, too. A lot of people go and hang out there and help each other stay sober. God seldom becomes a reality until he becomes a necessity. Um, when I got to AA, I believed that there had been a God that existed, but I couldn't tell you the last time I had talked to him. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religious organization by personal religious affiliation. We include Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, and a sprinkling of Muslims and Buddhists, so the book says. We even include women. It doesn't matter what religion you belong to. You are all equally welcome in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope, as our job is to be, is to make you feel welcome. That being said, I'm not here to discuss anything on religion. That's your own personal affair. I must say, though, that a long time ago, I did break up with my girlfriend at the time because she said she used to be Christian. I know, that seems a little judgmental, but I only knew her when she was Christine. I'm only here to talk about the possibility of the existence of a power greater than ourselves that can help the newcomer alcoholic expel the obsession to drink and enable him or her to become happily and usefully whole, to carry the AA message, not my own personal message. Those who get here with a God of their own understanding are way ahead of the game. About half of us do not when we get here. Remember, Alcoholics Anonymous is about saving drunks first, regardless of their background or faith or lack thereof. Our primary purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous is to stay sober, help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. The chapter in the book is called Chapter to the Agnostic. It's not called Chapter to the Believer for a reason. They knew what they were doing when they wrote the book back in 1939. They knew that they could reach out to more alcoholics if they appealed to all alcoholics. The Absolute's application slowly transitioned 
into the spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection application. And uh, as a result, Alcoholics Anonymous has saved millions of lives over those years that they would not have been able to reach if they had stayed on that same path, including my own life. Some people hit a roadblock at step two. About half of us get there as an atheist or an agnostic, believing in nothing or next to nothing, tried faith, gave up on it. We created that self-imposed hurdle that seemed too incredibly high for us to overcome. If you really think about it, the prerequisites for step two couldn't be any simpler. All you need is just a willingness to believe in something or any power greater than yourself. You even get to choose your own conception of God. You do not need to choose another conception of God, but you can if you want to. All you really need is a starting point, a beginning, if you will, to initiate that contact. How much easier can that get? We just basically ask ourselves one short question, do I now believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves? God either is or he isn't. What's your choice going to be? As soon as he says that he does or says that he's just even willing to believe, we assure him that he is well on his way. Not slightly on his way, well on his way. It is in the seeking, not the finding. God could and would if he were sought. A fish swam up to two other fish that were having a conversation with each other in the ocean and said, hey guys, isn't the water lovely today? And then just swam off. One fish looked at the other fish and said, what the heck is water? And the other fish said, I have no idea. So both of those fish spent the rest of their lives swimming in the ocean looking for water. We complicate things. We can keep things at a simpler level and then grow on that as we get uh, further on in our program. Uh, They say, don't try wasting your time trying to figure out which came first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, My wife and I went to a Halloween party once. She dressed as the egg. I dressed as the chicken. And the age-old question was answered right there on that very night. Another simple example to understand, and I've heard this one before, is the kindergarten teacher that went around the classroom asking her kids what was, the, what was it that they were painting, finger painting. And she went up to, uh, to little Bobby first and said, Bobby, what is that? And the little five-year-old says, it's a picture of my house. It doesn't even look anything like a house. And the teacher says, that's a great picture of your house, Bobby. Pats him on the head and moves on to little Susie. Little Susie, what are you painting? And she says, that's a picture of me and my dog playing ball. Of course, it doesn't look anything like that. And she says, what a great picture of your dog. And goes up to little Johnny and says, Johnny, what are you painting? And Johnny says, I'm painting a picture of God. And the teacher says, God? Nobody knows what God looks like. And the kid looks her dead in the eye and says, they will in a minute. (laughs) Now, again... I'm trying to reach out to the concepts. You guys can take what you want and leave the rest. You know, somewhere along the way, we are taught what to think or told that what we were taught was wrong. It can be so confusing to some people, and it can be comforting to others. Each one of us has traveled our own particular path on this subject. There are many paths to face, and step two teaches us that a beginning, no matter how inadequate, is all we need to start. Some people in Alcoholics Anonymous even bristle with antagonism when they hear people tell a newcomer that if you're having trouble with the God thing at the beginning, you can even make AA your higher power. It's actually in our literature. And their experience has shown that even that can be effective for some people in the very beginning who are really having trouble in this department. Remember, it's just the starting point. 
The journey has just begun. There are many paths. Each of them has had a beginning of its own. Many of these people end up calling God by name later on down the road. I have sponsored a priest, and I have sponsored an atheist. The priest went out, and the atheist stayed sober. The atheist changed his higher power from AA to God after several months. I simply told him to start his prayers with, God, if you're there, and then say the rest. And it gave him a comfort that he can start saying things and initiate that contact. We would have meetings in my office with all my sponsees, and he would be the first one to say after everybody's chatting, all right, guys, let's bring God into the picture and lead us off with the, Lord, uh, with the, the serenity prayer. It's amazing, the transition. It really is. Even if you don't believe in God, if you ask him for help, he'll help you. God works in mysterious ways. Let go and let God. Let him into your life, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. The keystone step. Selfishness, self-centeredness, they say that is the root of our problem. Simple to identify, almost impossible to correct on our own. Add in a huge dash of 100 forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity, and a ton of alcohol, and you got the recipe for one sick, alcoholic human being. We fight everybody and everything, sometimes when there's nothing there. We step on the toes of others, and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some point in the past, we've made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. Uh, Every once in a while, my wife will bring up a subject of something that I did 20 years ago. And I want to fight, lash out, and say, but that's not me now. And that's my pride. And my pride will hold me from growing. So I've got to, oops, I've got to uh, start taking the bull by the horns and accepting that I may not have been the nicest guy And along the way, I've hurt people. And this is my day later on to be hurt. It's usually mostly of our own making. We did it to ourselves. We're extreme examples of self-will run riot. We're out of control, out of our minds. When the book says above all, it means it's extremely important. And it tells us above all, we must get rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God help make that possible. We had to have God's help. Awareness, acceptance, and action. Self-will blocked the entry of God. We had already come to believe in a God in step two, but faith alone won't do the job. Faith without works is dead. The priest that I sponsored showed me that. Fear of faith. The more you have of one, the less you have of the other. The more fear I had, the chances were higher that I was going to drink. The more faith I had, the chances were less that I was going to drink. The how and the why of it, the book says we have to stop playing God, always wanting things our way, trying to make other people do what we want. Our way almost killed ourselves and others. I fought to uh, drive home drunk with my family in the car, and I didn't want anybody. I can drive. I can do this. Leave me alone. I'm fine, and I'm not fine. I had to relinquish that power that I thought I had, and something had more infinite power and wisdom. My way didn't work. My story proved that. 
One look, one look in the mirror ought to be enough for some of us. It was for me. A taught me that I was one of God's children and that he loved me. And all I had to do was let him love me and do his work to the best of my ability. And if I am one of God's children, so are each and every one of you. Let him be the boss. Let him be in charge. Let him do the directing. All I had to do was simply just make the decision to let God take over. What did I have to lose? There was nothing much more left for me to lose. Willingness is the key. The goal is to simply just open the door, even if it's ever so slightly. I'd already, again, come to believe in, in a higher power in step two. Now it was time for me to find faith, trust, and reliance. The belief part was already there. We've always had faith in some form or another, subtle forms of faith, faith in a friend, faith that the sun will rise in the morning and set in the evening. A little side note, the sun stays still. It doesn't rise at all. The earth spins and rotates around the sun. Sorry to ruin that for you. Another kind of faith was the faith that uh, I have feet. I haven't seen them in a long time, but I know they're there. But uh, seriously, think about it. Uh, How many times a day do you put faith in a simple everyday things without thinking of it? Without thinking about it on a conscious level, you have faith that you'll wake up in the morning, faith that you flick on the light switch, that the light will turn on, faith that when you put your key in the engine, your car will start up, faith that when you're driving down the street, the guy coming towards you in the opposite direction isn't going to swerve into you at the last second. We don't even think of it. But we have faith that that's, that exists and that it's there. Can you imagine how much fear it would be if every one of us in our drinking days in your last days of drinking, were driving their cars on the opposite side of a two-way highway, and you're the one driving this way. None of you guys have ever crossed the double yellow before, have you? I don't think so. I'd feel safe. We've already put our faith in Alcoholics Anonymous when we got here and took step one and step two. But now we have hopefully started to learn that faith put in Alcoholics Anonymous was due to the fact that the recovered people in Alcoholics Anonymous all believed in a power greater than themselves. They were getting it straight from the source. We were getting it straight from them. He spoke through them. We've also seen a faith in our sponsors to help guide us on our way. Now it was time to take it one step further. What are the benefits if we do? Peace of mind, serenity, comfort. We lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We become more interested in others and less interested in ourselves. We become God conscious. We get to start over. What a blessing. We are, in a sense, reborn. Who wants that? We just had to make a few changes, everything. We ask ourselves, what can we do for someone else today? How can I be a service? Sometimes a little prayer is all we need. God, please help me help you help somebody else. Short, sweet, to the point. Simple tasks and good deeds are opportunities that provide themselves to each of us every day. Some are predictable, some are unexpected, but we must train ourselves to be prepared throughout each day. Yesterday, for instance, when we got here uh, a little late, I saw a little baby bird that fell out of its nest, so my good good deed of the day was to put the bird back in its nest. It only took six or seven throws, but I eventually got it. (laughs) For those of us who have to uh, figure out what to do, the third step prayer breaks it down for you. And... uh, God, I offer myself to, be, to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self so that I can better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. Everything you need to start your day is right there. 
Vuk says that you don't have to say that word for word as long as you express the idea, voicing it without reservation. This, once again, is only a beginning, which, if honestly and humbly made an effect, sometimes a great one was felt at once. The third step requires persistent and consistent attempt, approach, and application. It has to be done daily for the rest of our lives. The remaining 12 steps can be practiced with success only when step three is given a determined and persistent trial. The whole rest of the AA program will rest upon how earnestly we've tried to come to a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood them. We may play tug of war and we may slam that door shut, but uh, the key of willingness can help open it up again as long as we humbly are willing. We always used to force our will in order to what we get want, and uh, we always try to control and manipulate others. When we align our will with God's, then we're using it correctly, and that takes practice. Serenity prayer, again, another prayer that centers you if you understand what it's trying to tell you. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Again, that's a perspective. I <clears throat> Courage to change the things I can. That gives you some courage, another perspective. And the hard part, the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Humility. It's not my will needs to be done. It's thy will. Always reminding us throughout our day. We can then trade in the consequences of our behavior for the rewards of our behavior. It's not old behavior if you're still doing it. And in conclusion, you can't quit if you don't admit. Half pints avail us nothing. Transformation happens on the other side of surrender. The man takes the drink, and then the drink takes the man. The task ahead of you is never as great as the power behind you. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I'm an alcoholic, drunk or sober. I will always be an alcoholic. One day I'm going to die as an alcoholic, but with God's grace, hopefully not an alcoholic death. Concentrating on your own recovery is a full-time process. It requires balance in the home, at business, and in your everyday relationships. AA is the glue that can help you keep these things together. Meetings, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the great importance of the wonderful fellowship we have will enable you to live the rest of your life happy, joyous, and free. The road to recovery is always under construction. Be aware of your surroundings. Obstacles do not block your path. They are the path. When life gets hard to stand, it's okay to kneel. Bend your knee before you bend your elbow. Don't worry about your search for God. He'll meet you at the steps. Spend more time with the big book instead of Facebook. When it comes to drinking, remember, I can't, they can, so let them. Motel 6 says, we always, we'll always keep the light on for you. Alcoholics Anonymous says, we'll turn the light on for you. Thank you. <laughs>